And that is part of the problem with policing. It's the arrogancy and unwillingness to evolve as our civilization and country evolves. We're still using antiquated methods to prevent person, a person from harming themselves and harming others. It's time to evolve, to learn better tactics. They're there. Once you put it in the universe, you will find other discoveries that could be used to really use non-lethal ways to prevent someone from committing a crime and hurting themselves and others. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, friends, and welcome to the 44th episode of Business for Good, in which I talk with one of the most credible voices on police reform in the nation, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. As you'll hear in the interview, Eric, and yes, that's what he asks people to call him rather than the more proper borough president, talks about how his experience of being beaten by the police while in custody as a black teenager led him to become a police officer himself for two decades and then ultimately to a life in politics. After serving in the police force, Eric was elected as a state senator in New York where he championed police reforms, including opposition to the then stop and frisk policy. And he's now in his second term as the chief executive of New York City's most populous borough, Brooklyn. And while it's still early, Eric is already considered by many as a front runner in the November 2021 mayoral race in America's largest city. For what it's worth, the current New York City mayor, Bill de Blasio, will be termed out of office and cannot run for re-election. In addition to discussing technologies from the private sector that Eric believes could be helpful in preventing lethal use of force by police. We also discuss how Eric's adoption of a plant-based diet reversed his diabetes, gave him back his health, and what he thinks private businesses can do to advance public health. Eric was in transit during our interview, so you'll hear a small amount of background noise, but rest assured, it's minor and does not prevent you from hearing the important words he has to say. I learned a lot from Eric's inspirational story and his prescriptions for both better policing and eating, and I think you will too. So now, Sit back as I bring you Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Eric Adams, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Podcasts are so powerful. It gives us an opportunity to have a conversation and not live in sound bites. You better believe it. Well, you take as much time as you want. You don't have to speak in sound bites. I know politicians often have to, but yeah, you got you got ample time here, man. So don't worry about it. So Let's just get right down to it. You know, you are right now serving as the uh, Brooklyn Borough President. For people who don't know what a borough president is, just give us a brief uh, explanation. What is that? In their municipalities, it may be called a county executive. New York City has five counties. Brooklyn is the largest of the five. And in fact, if Brooklyn was a separate city, it would be the third largest city in America with 2.6 million people, 47% of them speaking language other than English at home. And our role is to make sure our county receive a fair amount of resources and services from the city agencies. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you. So uh, I, I, you know, I live in California. I know that I I have my own county executive, so it makes it easier for me to understand it when you put in those terms. But those are obviously really massive numbers. And you were uh, born and raised there. And, you know, you were coming up 
as a young kid back in the 70s in Brooklyn. And tell me about the experience that I know you've talked about it before, but briefly, you had a pretty negative experience getting arrested and it put you on a trajectory in your life that many people might not have predicted for you. So tell me about what happened back then. And, and it's so true. The, uh, I was 15 years old and my brother and I were arrested for criminal trespassing. And for no reason other than the desire to uh, do something sadistic in my mind, my brother and I were beat bad by police officers. And it, it really stole my, my innocence. And I think sometimes people don't realize that 15-year-old children, no matter what race they are, they are still children. And that symbol of a police precinct was a place of protection turned into a place of indecency for me. And my grades were impacted. I became a very angry and really troubled young man because of that. And I had a lot of pain inside me for many years until I eventually uh, met a group of uh, leaders in an organization that fought against police brutality. And they subsequently encouraged me to go into policing to change from within. And reluctantly, I did it, and I'm happy I did. So how, um, how much later in your life, Eric, was this that you went from having been beaten by the police at age 15 to actually becoming a police officer yourself? Uh, it was uh, roughly nine years. I was beat at 15. I became a cop at uh, 24. Mm-hmm. And a lot happened during those uh, nine, 10 years, roughly, that really shaped me and the experience of watching both a man named Arthur Miller, 42 years ago, he was killed by 16 officers. To one of them used a chokehold uh, to take his life. He's a prominent businessman. And then a young man, man named Randolph Evans was shot and killed um, by a housing police officer. He never was found guilty also. And I think it's important when you think about what's happening now, Black Lives Matter's movement, All of us have benchmarked our lives by these negative encounters with police. I was back uh, when Clifford Glover was shot, 10-year-old young boy was shot by Officer Shea. Uh, Clifford Glover was just, you know, uh, running as a normal child would do, and he was shot and killed. So throughout my life, there's clear memories of the police negative interaction with people of color. Mm-hmm. And do you think that your beating at age 15 would have happened if you were white? No, not at all. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that uh, it was just a, a normalcy to that type of beating. And I believe something else. And I think that many scholars, sociologists, and psychiatrists will probably have to figure this out better than I. But, you know, during slavery, uh, slave masters would, plantation owners would cut the stomach of pregnant black women and pull the baby out. Uh, to show the other slaves uh, what could happen to them if they were disobedient. I really believe some of the stop and frisk, some of the uh, uh, beatings, some of the things that happened, I think there was a message that was sent to me as a young man that you won't come into this agency because you're going to hate this agency. And I think that racists have done a successful job in preventing black and brown Uh, young people to go into the department and change the department from within uh, because of that PTSD, that stigma, that epigenetics of years and years of abuse through slavery, I mean, through uh, police abuse. 
Now, I, I know that you spent a couple of decades as a police officer. What was your experience like there as a black man who had been abused by the police? You become a police officer yourself. Were you welcomed into that fraternal order or do you feel like you were an outsider still? You're, you're always an outsider. Uh, the blue uniform is not colorblind. Uh, people recognize the skin of the individuals who are in it. Uh, today, I was joined with a group of members from the core. This is the Council of Retired uh, Police Association, African-American officers. And, you know, they've taught me of what I was coming into in the beginning of my career, the numbers of years that they fought hard and fighting within. There was a lot of, of physical altercation and verbal altercations inside precincts to stop uh, racism within the police department. And so from the day one, when I was in the police academy, some weeks later, Eleanor Bumpers was shot and killed by Officer Sullivan. And while I was in the academy arguing that uh, that was a terrible racist shooting of this Black grandmother, and you know, just the hostility from my instructors I was clear that I was getting ready to go into a long journey and I didn't think I had a career inside that institution because I came there with the mission of dismantling racism. Mm -hmm. And is that part of the reason why you left being a police officer after two decades to go into politics? Yes, because I saw that if we wanted real change after the Amadou Diallo case, after uh, watching what happened with Abner Louima and being sodomized inside the 70th precinct, the Zongo shooting, a uh, young uh, African, uh, young immigrant who was shot and killed. After seeing incident after incident and the uh, misuse of stop and frisk uh, tool, I was clear that I had to now use my knowledge and experience from a police officer to a sergeant, to a lieutenant, to a captain, use that experience to really shape reform uh, now on the legislative end. And that was why I said I wanted to become a state senator so I could write laws and show how we could really reform policing. Sure. And so I know while you were a state senator, Eric, you had become like a vocal opponent of the stop and frisk policy. Were there other things that you were doing during that time to advance police reforms, uh, excuse me, police reforms during your time in the state Senate? Yes, I, I was clearly a, an advocate for so many of the changes. My colleagues came to me often. Uh, when I was a sergeant in the police department, I used to march with a gentleman named Randy Credico at Rockefeller Plaza to dismantle the Rockefeller drug laws, those, those draconian laws at the time. And little did I know the experience I got from that. I went to Albany and co-sponsored the bill that ended the Rockefeller drug laws. Uh, we introduced legislation to end the quota system in the police department. We put in place a bill, Congressman now, Congressman Hockey Jeffries and I put in place a bill that stopped keeping a database of innocent people that was stopped with stop questioning frisk. They were keeping the names of innocent black and brown people in the city. And we pushed even prison reform of women who used to be handcuffed when they were pregnant, we pushed reform to change that and how we looked at other areas. This police reform is a relay race. And next, each generation must hand the baton until we get to cross the finish line of productive, well-thought-out 
proactive policing and public safety. Mm-hmm. Sure. So let me ask you, you know, President Obama put out a list of what he thought were the, the eight reforms that ought to be implemented by uh, by the police. And I know I live in Sacramento, where our own mayor has now uh, endorsed that. Daryl Steinberg has, in, has endorsed Obama's platform. Uh, have you uh, paid, paid attention to what former President Obama is suggesting? And has that been given any thought for the police in Brooklyn or throughout New York? Well, I, I have not. Uh, I have not looked over President Obama's list. Uh, I, I think that uh, I would like to look at it, and I'm hoping that he received input and information from uh, the men and women who are of color and fought against racism in the police department. I think that's important because one should not go into a profession and attempt to reform it without having those who have been in the profession and have the knowledge of that profession, because there are chokeholds that's, that's preventing the reform in policing. And the only body of people that really understand those chokeholds, uh, they are the people who actually went through it. And mm-hmm. so there's some clear things we can do today, as I shared with the mayor. We can change how we assign precinct commanders. Um, our city is divided up into precinct. Each commander is in charge of a geographical boundary piece of real estate. And if we just have a better selection process to allow local community people to interview and choose their precinct commander, that would make a major impact on the quality of people that we have in our precinct because the, the officers take the direction from the precinct commanders, regardless of what the mayor and the police commissioner states, it's the local policing that would change policing in the city and in this country. I know, of course, Eric, as a politician, that you are going to first want to uh, look at what public policies can be changed, like what you're suggesting here as to how people get selected for leadership roles. Um, In terms of what private companies might be able to do to help on this, are there any efforts in the private sector right now that you think could be helpful with police reform in the way that police uh, engage in, for example, detaining people or other types of interactions that are going to be questionable? That's a great question because we sometimes look at what the police is doing wrong. I think of Jack Nicholson's quote, uh, you really can't handle the truth and the few good men. Mm-hmm. Let's, be, let's be clear. Some good-hearted people have ignored what has happened to black and brown people around policing for years. Our corporations and businesses basically turned a blind eye to what policing was like in America, because they basically said, as long as our streets are safe around our buildings, and long as we're able to do business, we're not going to concern ourselves with all of this reform. Floyd wasn't the first person that said, I can't breathe. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's now time for corporations to step up and play a role in using their expertise and doing some of the things that must be done to be more proactive in crime fighting, using technology that's available, uh, going in and ensuring proper employment, dealing with social conditions, our healthcare institutions. Crime comes out of 
the lack of proper, proper social issues. And all of us can play a role in being more proactive and not reactive to public safety. And I think corporations and businesses can play a major role in doing so. Even mm -hmm. down to training police officers properly for de-escalation and how to use proper escalation tactics. Well, let's talk about de-escalation and also you, you referenced technology. So, you know, if you watch the video of the murder of Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, you know, you see this guy who is running away from the police when they shoot him in the back. And I think a lot of people, certainly myself included, they watch that and they think, well, why would you shoot somebody with a gun who is running away from you? And surely there must be some easier way to detain somebody than shooting them with bullets in the back as they run away from you. So are there technologies out there that you're aware of that you could be used to detain somebody without causing them so much harm like a taser? Because obviously the taser was already out of play in that particular situation. But is there something that police officers could be equipped with that would enable them to painlessly detain somebody? Yes, without a doubt. And the technology is there, just the lack of energy of looking at it. One of the best products I've witnessed to do so is something called a BOLA wrap, B-O-L-A wrap. Uh, this technology is amazing. It's almost like a spider web that will tie someone up. Uh, the evolution of this technology is something that every police officer should have. It allows you to subdue someone like the case we saw in Atlanta and other cases where you don't have to escalate to use your weapon uh, it is an amazing tool. We need to look at that. And it, it is even less lethal than a taser. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that we need to incorporate non-lethal devices in subduing people, particularly when they're not armed with a firearm or extremely, in cases with the bowler wrap, you can use it even if someone is armed with a knife or some other dangerous instrument. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I actually watched the video of Bola Rap being used and I thought the only harm this is going to cause to this guy is embarrassment. Like that's it. He's going to be embarrassed because <laughs> it is. I mean, it's like a spider web that's going to trip him up. It's almost like, you know, like not exactly like shooting a net over somebody, but it is essentially immobilizing them without actually hurting them. And it just seemed to me like, why not? That seems like a business innovation that could really prevent a lot of people from getting hurt and even killed. Um, and it would be even clearer than it is now as to like why such lethal force would be totally unnecessary if you had that. So it's not to say that, it that it's not unnecessary now, but it is to say it would be, I think, even more clear uh, with that. So is anybody using Bola Wrap, Eric? Do you know if this has actually been deployed in, in the real world by any police officers? Some local small sheriffs and municipalities, uh, they are currently using it. And we're hoping that the large agencies like the New York City Police Department would also start using it. And that is part of the problem with policing. It's the arrogancy and unwillingness to evolve as our civilization and country evolves. We're still using antiquated methods to prevent person, a person from harming themselves and harming others. It's time to evolve, to learn better tactics. They're there. Once you put it in the universe, you will find other discoveries that could be used to really use non-lethal ways to prevent someone from committing a crime and hurting themselves and others. Yeah, right. 
Well, you know, there's a, there's a lot to talk about on this topic, but I want to make sure that we also get in some time to talk about something that I know is also a passion of yours. And so this is going to feel like an abrupt shift in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, of course, you know, police reform is obviously the big topic of the day in the news, and uh, rightly so. At the same time, you've become very well known for making a pretty radical shift in your own life uh, with regard to your own personal health, with regard to your diet. And so just tell me, Eric, you know, what type of foods did you grow up on and what was the, the health status that you were having as you were moving on through your life and what you thought might be your own future as you look down at the, the final half of your life here? Well, I was I was on the tip, typical American diet. My family's from the South, so we had everything that was processed, fried, sugary, uh, high salt, the typical, you know, American experience on what we were eating. And the results of that, if you're going to eat the typical American diet, you're going to have the typical American disease. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until four years ago that I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Uh, late stages, by the time I got to the doctor, it impacted my vision. I lost my sight in my left eye, and I was losing it in my right. The doctor actually told me, the ophthalmologist told me that I was legally blind, and I had to turn in my driver's license. And I also had permanent nerve damage in my hands and feet that could eventually lead to amputation and high blood pressure, high cholesterol, had an ulcer. Uh, I couldn't even feel my right thigh because of the nerve damage. And uh, I was told basically this was my path in life, that this is what happens when you reach a certain age. Uh, These are some of the diseases that come about. And I just refused to embrace that. And I did something extremely, I like to say, extremely scientific. I went to Google and Google reversing <laughs> diabetes. And you know, what, you, you know what was really interesting, uh, Paul? What's that? They gave me books and pamphlets, all the doctors. I went to five of the best doctors. And they all told me about how to live with diabetes. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I went to the computer. Instead of typing living with, I typed reversing. That one yes. road took me down a different path. Amazing. You know, it's so interesting that, you know, so often we hear from folks, oh, you know, your parent had this ailment, so therefore you're more likely to have it. And so often it's not because you share genes with your parent, but rather because you share lifestyle with your parent. And uh, I I don't want to, I don't want to um, steal your thunder on the end of your story here. So when you go on, so after you Google reversing diabetes, what happens? Did you go blind? Did you have your feet amputated? What happened? Uh, no, thank God. Uh, the All the information uh, came up. I was able to read and I came in contact with some great doctors that really understood the power of food. Dr. Esselton, Dr. Barnard, Dr. Gregor, his book, How Not to Die. And I called Dr. Esselton and told him who I was and asked, could I come down to see him? And I flew to Ohio to the Cleveland Clinic and learned from him the power of food. And I remember Paul, him, that he was uh, telling me what I needed to do. And I was saying, you know, this guy's some type of quack. I'm losing my sight. And he's telling me to stop eating fried chicken. What's wrong with him? <laughs> but, but, I, but I had nothing to lose. And so I returned to the city and went through my cupboards and went through my uh, fridge. And to my surprise, as I started to uh, see 
what he was saying. All my food was processed. It was all, uh, you know, filled with just bad things. And I threw it all out and started a whole food plant-based diet. And three weeks after, my vision came back. Amazing. Yeah, three months after, my nerve damage went away. My diabetes went in remission. My ulcer went away. My cholesterol and blood pressure normalized. Uh, my entire body, I lost 35 pounds and just never felt better. My entire body just changed. Congratulations. And, and, and my mother, at 80 years old, she joined me uh, back then. And within two months, she was off her insulin. Mom was on insulin for seven years. She was diabetic for 15 years. And it just goes to show you, it was never, as you said, it was never my DNA. It was my dinner. We just <laughs> shared it. We shared the same dinner. Yeah. No. Well, congratulations both to you and to her. How's she doing now? She, she's doing well. You know, life is, you know, caught up years of eating some yeah. bad things, but she's doing well. And, you know, hopefully, you know, she deals with the challenge of that long diet. That's why it's important to start our young people off early uh, to eat healthy and learn the habits so they won't be addicted mm-hmm. to the food that we have, the fast food, the junk food, the poisonous food. Yeah. So now that you are the Brooklyn Borough President, Eric, and you know you're one of the highest uh, elected officials who is in, enjoying and espousing a plant-based diet. What do you think can be done at the public policy level? And then after, I also want to ask you about the at the private level, but at the public policy level to help encourage uh, more plant-based eating. We've seen New York has a history under Bloomberg with uh, the the soda ban and so on uh, of trying public health initiatives that did not end up succeeding uh, in some ways. Um, But what do you think that could be done to help encourage more plant-based eating among New Yorkers and among Americans in general? That's a great question. Uh, To me, I think it's important that we start on the grassroots level. And what I mean by that is to start in our educational system. We should start teaching our young people uh, how to eat healthy. Build it into the curriculum. You know, uh, one apple plus one apple minus processed meat equals health. You know, well, let's be creative. You know? <laughs> I like let's, that. Let's do- Let's do the geography of food. Where's food located? Uh, Let's use science to show the power of spices, uh, what turmeric does to uh, help with, you know, a healthy environment, ginger, cinnamon, uh, nutmeg, uh, you know. So we need to incorporate health into our schools and allow our children to live a healthy lifestyle. Think about this. 70% of 12-year-olds have early signs of heart disease, our number Mm -hmm. one killer. That's unimaginable. This is not sustainable. And so the second thing, we were successful here in the city to convince the mayor to take processed meat out of schools. Processed meat is a type 1 carcinogen, yet we've been serving it to our children. Other type 1s are cigarettes and asbestos. Uh, So, I mean, we don't give our children Marlboro every morning, so why are we giving them processed meat? Then we need to change our hospitals. Our hospitals have to stop being a place of treating symptoms, but a place of reversing diseases. I have a program at Bellevue Hospital where I may, we put in place with Dr. McMacken. It's an amazing initiative. It's the first of its kind, a lifestyle medicine. And we're giving people an option. If you go to the hospital 
you should be given an option. Do you want drugs for the rest of your life or do you want to try a lifestyle med medicine regimen that can reverse your disease instead of hide your symptoms? And it's unfortunate that many hospitals are not doing that. Bellevue has a great deal of success. We're looking to expand this throughout our entire uh, city. Uh, so I think there's great opportunities to change healthcare as we know it. As we talk about reform and policing, we need to talk about reforms in every part of our lives and go to the foundation that has been built on a terrible belief system. And it's important to change that. Okay, well, now we know what you want to do if you were to be, for example, uh, the mayor of New York. But what recommendations would you have, Eric, for companies that want to do better on this, whether they be food companies or others? What would you recommend to folks in the private sector who share your goal of wanting to encourage more plant-based eating, uh, but they might not know what to do? And, and, and what companies, companies should do is think about their bottom line. Hey, the amount of money you are losing as a company with healthcare, 30 million Americans have diabetes, 84 million are on deck waiting to uh, get diabetes with pre-diabetes. We're spending 80 cents on a dollar in healthcare. Healthcare costs is going to cripple companies. So if you want to bring down your healthcare, look at the food that you're serving in your cafeterias and to your employees. Uh, the amount of productivity that's lost because someone is diagnosed with diabetes is going to impact your bottom line. Also, look at, think about gym membership. Have spaces in the office where your employees can exercise and incorporate meditation and yoga into your plan. Give standing desks like I give to all my staffers here. Allow an opportunity uh, to focus on wellness. Bring people in that can show them how to cook meals that are healthy and how to use alternative ways of flavoring and seasoning your food. And so companies should look at their employees as an investment so that they know that if I make you healthy, your productivity is better, your lifestyle is better, you are happier employees. So it's important that we start investing in health and they can do it gradually. There's so much information out there now where you can bring in experts that would give small half an hour, hour courses on healthy regimens and what you can do. Like Dr. Gregor should be brought in to do a lecture. Dr. Bonner, they have great programs that they uh, lecture and give information to employees and other staffs. Uh, I can't possibly agree with you more that Dr. Gregor should be giving more talks for these companies. I, I totally agree with you. So let me just ask you, Eric, as we wind down here, you have achieved a lot in your life. You have not only become a police officer, but then a state senator winning re-election time and time again. You were elected as Brooklyn Borough President, re-elected as Brooklyn Borough President. You may end up becoming the mayor of uh, this gigantic city, the biggest city in our country. If there are people who look at you and they look at your success and they're thinking, I want to be more like him. Are there any books or other resources that you would recommend to them to say, hey, these were useful for me in my journey and I'd recommend them to you too? Oh, I'm a reader. I'm an uh, audio book, audible uh, book reader as well. Uh, one of the best books and series of books that I've read is Dr. Dispenser. The first one I read was You Are the Placebo. And then I started reading uh, the other books of, of how you can change the way you think and, and how you can change your life in the process. 
I'm a Malcolm Gladwell guy. Um, everything from Outliers to uh, Tipping Point. Uh, he's a great writer and storyteller. I enjoy his books. Uh, the goal is really to start appreciating this beautiful existence we are as human beings. And we don't do that enough. We're far more than what we were told. We have to unlearn to learn of what the experience of being a human being is about. Let's unlearn um, how to eat and what foods we should eat. Unlearn uh, how we communicate and become a better communicator so we can be a deep listener to seek to understand so we can be understood. Unlearn how we have loving relationships with our family and how do we heal ourselves internally by doing things like yoga and meditation and doing uh, internal self-care. And so there's a whole process of the person who's in front of you now or you're hearing is not the person I've always been. I was like a caterpillar looking up at a butterfly saying, you'll never get me in one of those, only to realize that I would go through my own cocoon and change. And eventually I would learn to really take flight and fly. And I think all of us have those caterpillar moments. We can all get to that level. Well, Eric Adams, Brooklyn Borough President, you're certainly flying now, and we'll look forward to watching you as you continue to try to do good in the world, whether that is through continued elected office or otherwise. So thanks so much for your time. Thanks for everything that you're doing on so many important topics as the Borough President, and we'll look forward to watching further success of yours, all right? Thank you, Paul. Take care. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.